Good morning, everybody. So uh, we, as Aurelia said and Fran has said, we are in the season of Easter, which is a season. It's not just a one-day holiday full of chocolate and bunnies and things like that, or even a one-day holiday for the church, but it's, it's an entire season. And I like how Aurelia put it earlier, that it takes us all these seven weeks to begin practicing what resurrection is, so maybe it sinks in to the rest of our lives. But it's a season of celebrating and looking for resurrection in all the ways that resurrection happens in our lives. I hope you are having your own resurrection experiences in life right now, even though I know life doesn't always work that way. Resurrection doesn't always show up on a schedule on time like spring flowers. It kind of sneaks up on you in unexpected ways. And I hope that's what's happening. So when Aurelia and Fran and I were planning the Easter season, we thought it would be helpful and hopefully at least a little bit fun for us to use these next five weeks to try and resurrect some of the trite, uh, boring, tired, overused, mindless, uncritical things that Christians say. You know, these Christianese type statements that are just dripping thick with unnecessary piety. I think you know what I'm talking about. Many of these things are triggers for those of us who have left behind a fundamentalist type faith and we're trying to move towards something else. To be honest, for me, songs like The Wondrous Cross we sang earlier can be that kind of piety around violence in my mind. And so I have to be aware that something like that is triggering me. And I love what you did with it, Fran, combining it with that chorus from last week. But often these Christianese sayings are some of the things that we have tossed away during our deconstruction of toxic religion. But as we like to say around here, it's not enough to just deconstruct our spirituality. It's not enough to simply burn paradigms down and tear them apart. If we are going to live meaningful, intentional, fulfilled lives, we need to also reconstruct and build something. Otherwise, we're not a church. We're just a deconstruction support group. And that's not enough for me. I can get that on Facebook. I want more than that in this community. So over the next month, we'll be having some fun with some of the crazy stuff that Christians say and exploring if there's anything life-giving left in them, any burning ember left there that maybe we can pull out and put to good use, something that's worth holding on to. So the phrase that I want to focus in on for just a few minutes today, maybe you've heard it, it goes something like this. I just feel called by God to, and then fill in the blank with something crazy. <laughs> Have you ever heard someone use a variation of this? Sometimes it's used when someone doesn't want to face due criticism about how their choices might negatively impact others. For instance, I might say, I just feel called by God to leave my wife and date that other person. I mean, I'm just as surprised as you about this, but you know that's how God works, right? Surprises us. Or I might say, I feel called by God to fly that airplane into that building or to bomb that mosque. People say this. God's ways are higher than my ways and God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts, so who am I to question what God is calling me to? The result often is that it insulates the person saying it from criticism. It upholds authoritarian hierarchy and unilateral decision-making. 
For instance, I might say, I just feel called by God to move my family across the world or across the country, and my wife and my kids have to go along without complaining because, you know, this is from God, so they have to. I'm sure you all have experiences of people in your lives, family members perhaps, uh, using this kind of unilateral decision-making on you. We might also use this phrase sometimes when we don't want to put ourselves out there, when we don't want to say what, what we want or what we need. We don't want to claim it for ourselves. So rather than saying, I just really need a day for myself, I might say some variation of, I'm not really feeling called to be part of that this weekend. Instead of saying, I don't want to date you, we might say, I don't think God wants us together. I was dating a young lady once that probably I shouldn't have been, and the way I justified it to my friends was saying, this is a God thing. <laughs> it's a God thing. Oh, well, okay. And of course, I later broke up with this same young lady because God wanted that too, because I guess God found me a hotter girl. <laughs> I've probably personally made multiple women hate this incredibly fickle God, which is probably a natural result when we attribute all of our decisions and actions to God that we don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. Sometimes we use this idea when we come from a tradition like I have in the past where God is hyper-focused on your choices and you'd better discern God's will for every single detail of your life? Do you come from this kind of hyper-providence, hyper-focused kind of faith? Um, I can remember agonizing over what the right God-ordained choice is for what I would study in college, exactly who I would date, what car I should drive, what house I should buy, who my friends should be. Heather and I agonized over if we were allowed to get married in a certain location because it was owned by somebody of a different faith. We thought God cared about every single little decision that we made. And let me just say, I am so glad to be out of that oppressive, rule-oriented, fear-based, life-limiting paradigm and system where God cares about every single little decision and we have to feel called to follow Him in every single little decision of our lives. Most of the time, use of this form of piety serves to deny personal responsibility. That's what I'm talking about here. In his book, Nonviolent Communication, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, and this is the book we studied in our Lenten small group this year, but Dr. Rosenberg talks about the German word Amtsprach. I'm probably saying this incorrectly, but Amtsprach was the term used by Nazis as a shorthand way of justifying their actions, and it means the language of official duty or the language of obligation to the institution or to the higher power. When interviewed about their atrocities, about murdering millions of Jews, Adolf Eichmann said, it was easy for us to do it. He said, our language made it easy because we have the idea of Amtsprach, which meant when you simply tell a subordinate to do something, they know it's their duty to do it. You have to. You must do it. It's your responsibility. It is required of you. It is Amtsprach. Well, if the authority requires it of me, if the authority requires it of me, then I must do it. And this led to a denial of personal responsibility by masses of people where they could say, I'm not murdering people. I'm just obeying my superior. It's my duty to obey. Who am I to question? And likewise, we employ Amtsprach when we simply say, God called me to do this. 
What else can I do? But we don't subject ourselves to the criticism of others, especially those whose lives we're impacting, or to the criticism of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, or what's been called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. The result of all this is that people get away with murder. We exercise unchecked power. We make really poor choices. Of course, we know this here this morning. I'm not talking to a regular group of Sunday churchgoers here. I'm talking to a group that's largely done with these kinds of BS power dynamics. But I decided to use some of our time together this morning to talk about this because I'm concerned about what we might lose if we were to toss the idea of calling out the window altogether. My pastoral concern, my presumption and bias, to be honest, is that we each need some kind of center around which to orient our lives. We need some ground upon which to put our feet, and without such a center or a ground, we can too easily fall into the pit of despair. Our lives can too easily come unraveled with meaninglessness. I'm reminded of the work of Viktor Frankl, a psychiatrist who survived the Nazi death camps, and after reflecting about why some people lived and others didn't, he came to the theory and the conclusion that we, as humans, are creatures of meaning. And if we can find some kind of meaning in our lives, we can live. But in the absence of meaning, we shrivel up and we die. Man's Search for Meaning one of his most famous books. Maybe you've read it. If not, it's a fantastic book. He observed, reflecting back on his time in the Nazi death camps, he observed that those who could find meaning in at least one of three ways had a much better chance of surviving the otherwise meaningless existence in the death camps. He said, first, if we can find someone to show love to, find someone to show love to, we would find sufficient meaning to keep going, even in a Nazi death camp. In the absence of that, he said if we could secondly find some kind of work that seemed meaningful or important to us, even if it was emptying out the latrine, even if it was squishing fleas in the cabins they had to live in, cabins is the wrong word, barracks, whatever, whatever, if we could find some kind of work that was meaningful and important, then we could keep living. Or last, he said, in the absence of both of those opportunities for meaning, if we could find some way to let the suffering itself transform us into a more alive person, then that would bring meaning to our lives. And against all odds, even in the hell of a death camp, we could live. Basically, he said, those who can find a why to live can endure any how they had to live. If you can find a why, then you can endure any how. And I'm aware this morning that many of us teeter on the edge of being done with a Christian worldview, but I think it can help us find some whys as to, why, or as to, as to how we can navigate through life. There are many options out there for what your why might be. Your why might be to maximize profit or your bank account. Or maybe Freud was right, and the why is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Or maybe it is to collect experiences or acquire Instagram followers or start Facebook fights, George Brown. I don't know what your why is 
in life. All these are possible whys for living, some of them really tempting. But what does why or calling look like in a post-deconstructed, post-critical, stripped-down Christian spirituality? St. Augustine, an early church leader, perhaps one of the most prominent, said in one of his sermons, Love God and do what you will. I included this quote at the beginning, at the front of your handout this morning, because I appreciate how it can free us from the constraints of unnecessary piety. Love God and do what you will. It reminds me uh, when we were having a discussion about providence in one of my seminary classes one day, and the professor said that most people live with a blueprint worldview. They live as if God has a predetermined blueprint for their lives, and then they have to labor to discern the details of it out of fear of messing up, of doing something wrong, of not making the right choice. The professor said that he doesn't understand God this way. He doesn't think God has a blueprint for our lives. Instead, he thinks it's a lot more like the Garden of Eden. There are a few rules like nurture this place, help it expand to become more life-giving, and stay away from that one tree over there. But overall, there's a tremendous amount of freedom to do the work you're called to do. Make this place more lush. Make it more nurturing. Make it more beautiful. Help it expand. And this is why I included for our scripture reading, read by Paul and provided wonderful commentary by Paul as well. Thank you for that. Earlier, this Genesis text in which God creates humanity, male and female, in God's image, and gives them the fiduciary responsibility to care for creation. Uses the word rule and subdue in there, which can be a trigger for me as well, until I remember that the way God rules is most displayed in Jesus. That's the kind of way that God rules. And the Genesis account says that this is humanity's calling, which is beautifully broad and open, right? Likewise, the New Testament speaks very broadly of our calling. Ephesians 4 simply says, Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. John 15 says, Go and bear fruit that will last. 1 Peter 3 says, You're called not to repay evil for evil, but to be a blessing. Jesus made it incredibly simple for us. Love your neighbor as yourself. These and other verses paint the picture that the Christian calling is not to a particular task or role, but instead to an ethos, to an ethic, to a way of life that is cultivating the world into a lush garden. The other quote that I included at the front of your handout is from Frederick Beekner, a Presbyterian minister. And you've probably heard this quote from him. He says, there are all kinds of different voices calling you to all different kinds of work. And the problem is to find out which of these is the voice of God rather than the voice of society or the superego or self-interest. By and large, a good rule for finding out is this. The kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work that A, that you need most to do, and B, that the world most needs to have done. The place God calls you to is at the intersection where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. The place God calls you to is the intersection where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Where is that intersection for you? 
the place where the work you need to do intersects with a need in the world. Notice that Beekner says nothing here of career or salary or credentials or position, which is good because if you're depending on your job to satisfy your sense of meaning and calling, you are one layoff or one missed promotion or one debilitating illness away from tumbling toward meaninglessness and despair. You need to find instead the intersection of work that satisfies a deep need in you and addresses a deep need in the world. I'm reminded of our friend Eric back here, who, as many of you know, is working in Port A, overseeing the remodel of a large condo. That's his job, but what is his calling? Last weekend, one of the condo owners, an elderly man, had a stroke and was unable to attend Easter service, something that's really important to him. So this week, Eric and a co-worker put together an entire Easter service for the man's, for him in his condo. Readings, a sermon, communion, singing. They even had to endure Eric's singing. I feel so bad for them. He's a fantastic singer. Eric and Caleb didn't worry if they were called by God to do this. Is God calling us to do this? No. They didn't have to worry if they had permission or credentials. No, it doesn't matter. It was simply the intersection of work that they needed to see done and that the world needed to have done. This was their calling in that moment. Some of you know this, but I was recently accepted to the UT School of Social Work to complete an MSW degree. I hope to use my time there to study violence in its many forms in our society and to learn helpful ways to prevent and respond to it. In our society and most of the world, we uncritically consume a steady diet of violence from very early on, and the myth of redemptive violence is one of our most sacred idols in society. Now, I don't have to agonize over, is God calling me here or not? I don't have to pull some power play on Heather and say, well, God has called me to do this, so you better get on board. Instead, the supply side of passion, aptitude, resources, and support intersects with the demand side of a society unable to see and respond to its violence addiction. How long will it be before we have an outburst of violence that occurs here in our own community? And how well are we prepared to respond to the spiritual and mental health fallout that will come? When it happens, I'm concerned that we'll mindlessly respond with the same thinking that supports violence and alienation. In this case, I would say a deep gladness in me and a deep need of the world intersect, and that sounds a lot like a calling. I could go on with examples I know of in your lives, the work that Leela does with Care Portal, the work that Chad does with young people, the work that our teachers do, the work that our business folks do. Many of you are doing work that you cannot leave undone. You have to see it through. There's a deep need in you to do that, whether it's during the work week or before or after. And this is your calling. What about this community? the Peace of Christ community. What is our sense of calling here? In what ways do our passions, aptitudes, and resources intersect a great need in the world? I think we're still figuring this out, but I also think that we're a lot further down the road than we were a couple of years ago, and thank God for that. We put a tremendous amount of effort and resources into expanding notions of who's in God's family and creating safe, inclusive spaces for those who would not feel comfortable in most churches. 
That's certainly work that brings us deep gladness here. And we think it also meets a deep need in the world. But there is so much more work to be done in your own lives, in this community. And thanks be to God that we have one another as companions in that work. This is always communal work. And may the God who ever welcomes us into her home and at her table continue to lead us in what we dare to believe is our calling as individuals and as a community here. Amen.